Uh, so what I want to do is to, uh, to do answer two questions. One, why should we preach Christ from the scriptures? And then two, how do we preach Christ from the scriptures? And even as I ask those two questions, you're probably thinking to yourself, how in the world is he going to answer those two questions in one hour? I'll do my best. I don't think I can do it fully, uh, but in the, in the time allotted, and I think in, in about 40 minutes, I'm going to try to do that, maybe 45 so that there's time for some questions and answers, because I think that will be also helpful. So two questions. Why should we preach from all the scriptures? And then two, how should we preach from all the scriptures? So first of all, why should we preach from all the scriptures? That is, how should, why should we preach Christ? Let me back that up. Why should we read, interpret, and then preach and teach Christ from all the scriptures, right? Because even before we say preaching and teaching Christ from all the scriptures, that presupposes we're interpreting Christ from all the scriptures, and we're seeing Christ in all the scriptures when we read it. So let me give you three reasons why I believe we ought to read, see, interpret, and then preach and teach, and hopefully counsel and live because of Christ in all the scriptures. Three reasons, because it's biblical, because it's foundational, and third, because it's practical. So first, the main reason I believe we ought to read and interpret and preach Christ from all the scriptures is because it's biblical. I think one of the most compelling reasons why we do this is because I think Jesus and the apostles did it themselves. So if you were to go back in time to the first century, Jesus and the apostles, I believe, are preaching Christ, preaching the gospel from the scriptures. In the first century, the scriptures as we have it, the Old and New Testament did not exist. Only one part did, namely the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus, in Luke 24, one of the most seminal chapters in the scriptures that talk about Jesus' own thinking and methodology about interpreting and preaching the scriptures, shows up. Do you remember in Luke 24, Jesus is, this is after his death and resurrection, he appears to two very discouraged disciples, two disciples that have been following Jesus, had been through all the chaotic events of the trial, the death of Jesus. And now they're traveling from Jerusalem, post-death of Jesus, to Emmaus, the Emmaus Road journey in Luke 24. It's about a seven-mile journey. And during this seven-mile walk, these two discouraged disciples happen upon, happen upon, right? Providentially, Jesus shows up and begins to give them the greatest Bible story I think ever told, or never told. Because we, see, we read in, play, in, in Luke 24 that as Jesus was walking with them, he, be, he said something like this, especially when these two disciples began to explain to him how discouraged they were. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So now he's talking about the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus makes the argument from Scripture, from the Old Testament, that what happened to him, namely his death and resurrection, was already predetermined by Scripture, by God himself. And then he goes on this and says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Fascinating. He uses this, this category of Moses and all the prophets. Did you know in the first century, and even to this day, if you ask any Jew in a synagogue how they talk about their Bible, their Hebrew Bible, one way to talk about it is by calling it, oh, you mean Moses and all the prophets. That was the, that was the title that was used to describe the entire Hebrew Bible. 
But wait, there's more. It's like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Jesus, later on in the same story, makes his case. Not just Moses and all the prophets, but later in verse 44, he says this to these disciples. These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Very interesting, right? So everything written about me in the law of Moses, right? Law of Moses, right? The prophets and the Psalms. Okay? Those are the three categories that he uses. Thank you so much, brother. Again, remember I said the law and the prophets was one way to describe the Hebrew Bible. The law of Moses in the Hebrew Bible is called the Torah. The section of the Bible in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, which is not categorized like, that, like ours. I feel like if you open up a Hebrew Bible, you actually open it from this way because they read backwards or forwards in their perspective. But if you open it up and look at the table of contents, it's not the exact table of contents as our English Bible, whatever. You actually, there are three main categories in the Hebrew Bible, even to this day. They're the Law of Moses, the Prophets. The Prophets actually begin with Joshua. They consider Joshua one of the earliest prophets. So all the prophets including the major prophets we would know, like Isaiah, Daniel, etc., Ezekiel, and then all the 12 minor prophets are all in this section, right? And that's actually called the Nevi'im. That's the Hebrew word for prophets. And then everything else that's, that are not in these two categories are called the Kethuvim in Hebrew. And the reason why, oftentimes, the Psalms is, is recorded as or it, Jesus states the Psalms because a lot of people, the Psalms is the first book in this section. Does that make sense? Because it doesn't fit in the law, it doesn't fit in the prophets. And so, what are the three letters here? The T and K. If you go to a Jewish synagogue today and you pick up one of their Bibles, in the front of their Bibles, you'll, you'll have T and K. It's called a Tanakh. Jesus uses this designation and says, everything in the Tanakh must be fulfilled is about me. So we have to pay attention when Jesus uses these kinds of statements. It's not a throwaway, oh, law, law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's saying, look at the table of contents in the Hebrew Bible, and guess what? All of that is about me. That's a pretty bold statement. But it's also a glorious statement. Because it means that the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New, tells us something about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, we're going to talk, don't, don't worry, about how to do that. Because not every little detail per se is about Jesus. But fundamentally, I think what Jesus is, is, is arguing is that the Bible has an essential unity. Even amongst all the diversity of people, lands, even languages. Part of the Hebrew Bible is also written in Aramaic, a different language. The book of Daniel, part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. Even across all this diversity of people, language, time, cultures, generations, there's an essential unity. Why? Because I think, I, I think most of us in this room believe that there's actually fundamentally one author. The Holy Spirit. God Himself. That God somehow, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God supernaturally through the power of His Spirit move these men, these authors, all the holy men of the Bible, to write in such a way that God has an intention as well as the intention of the human author. Does that make sense? 
So while part of our responsibility as preachers and teachers of the Bible, as well as just readers of the Bible, is to figure out what the authors themselves are saying, the human authors, we also need to take into consideration the divine author. That both the human authors and the divine author has something to teach us. And one of the main things that the divine author is trying to tell us is that the Bible is about Jesus and the gospel. That his saving purposes, that God's desire to save from the mass of humanity, a people for himself, is, pro- is, is preeminently only done through the work of Jesus, his son. So the Old Testament look forward to the coming Messiah, and we look back at the Messiah who has already come. But everything centers on Jesus. And I think this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 24. So one of the reasons why we read, interpret, and preach Christ from all the scriptures is because Jesus himself did so. Now you're asking, Julius, it's one thing for Jesus to teach that. Did he actually model that? He actually did. Thank you for asking that. (laughs) Jesus not only teaches this methodology or this paradigmatic understanding of the scriptures, but he actually does it himself. We don't have time, but in, in John chapter 6, after Jesus preaches to the 5,000, he gets up and preaches. And he preaches a very interesting sermon, often called the Bread of Life Discourse. If you have time, take a look at it. Maybe during the break you can take a look at this. But in the Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus preaches a sermon. We know this because of the pattern that he uses. He basically has two points. It's a two-point sermon. Not very Presbyterian. I usually choose three. (laughs) But he has a two-point sermon, which was very similar to the sermons we have of the first four centuries of synagogue sermons. So rabbis in synagogues in the first to fourth century, we have evidence of the kinds of sermons that they gave. So you study them. You study their style, their form. And interestingly... The form of Jesus' sermon here, called a discourse, I actually think it's a sermon. The form of Jesus' sermon here in John 6 is very similar to almost exactly like the form of first century synagogue sermons. In the first century, if you were to go to a synagogue, so let's say you're, you're a Jew, you go to your synagogue service on, sat, on the Sabbath, and they'll read the appointed text for the day, what they had in the Jewish synagogues, Uh, the rabbis would have specific texts that were chosen throughout the year. It's called a lectionary. You remember the story in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the temple or to the synagogue, and the the scroll happens to come upon Isaiah 61, and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? So that's when the scroll, meaning that was the text for the day. Jesus' text for this particular day was two particular texts. The Jewish synagogue sermon always chose one primary text to interpret and preach from, from the law. Then a secondary text, usually from the prophets. In John 6, it's the same thing. The primary text in which he preaches this bread of life discourse is from Exodus 16. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 16? In Exodus 16, the Israelites are on their wilderness wanderings. They get hungry. They grumble and mumble and they cry out to God. And so what does God do? God miraculously gives them bread from heaven, manna. So he he quotes from that in this bread of life discourse, bread of life sermon. And then he starts saying, well, you remember that bread that fed the Israelites and they survived and lived? Guess what? I'm that bread. Think of how shocking that would have been for these Jewish listeners. 
No one has ever interpreted the Old Testament. I can't, for the Jew, it would have just been the Hebrew Bible. No one had ever interpreted their scriptures in such a way that they would connect that manna from heaven to this carpenter's son from Nazareth. And if, and if that wasn't enough, the second text that he chooses from the prophets is from Isaiah. And so then he quotes, he goes, oh, and by the way, I'm that bread. And they, then he said, now let me give you the second point of the sermon. Okay, great. They will all be taught by God. Guess what? He's saying, I am God. Again, shocking that he's interpreting Exodus 16, the event of manna coming from heaven, this prophetic word from Isaiah saying, they will all be taught by God. He's now interpreting about himself. I'm the bread that came from heaven. I am actually God. And only by eating me, that is believing in what I've come to do, will you have eternal life. Think about the audience and what they were thinking. How crazy that would have been. And yet this is exactly what Jesus does. So he uses a form that would have been very familiar to the listeners. Ah, here's another rabbi who's going to give us a sermon in this style. So very familiar. But this interpretation was anything but familiar. And yet what Jesus does in that moment is turn all of our interpretive principles upside down. He says, now, now that I've come, and now that I've lived a life that you cannot live perfectly, now that I'm about to die for your sins as God and raised from the dead, which no one has ever done, you can never look at the scriptures the same way again. I'm that important. I think he's the only person in humanity that can say that, that I'm really important <laughs> and not be boastful about it, right? <laughs> and that's what Jesus does. So I, should, I could hopefully just stop here and say, all right, if Jesus does it, that convinces me. But he's not the only one. His apostles do it too. His disciples do it. Again, just a cursory look at the apostles in the New Testament and how they interpreted and preached should demonstrate that the, one of the reasons why we ought to read, preach the scriptures with Christ in mind is because the apostles did it. Just a simple word study. For example, if you take every Greek verb in the New Testament used for preaching and teaching, there's a variety of them like kerux, which means to herald, or euangolitsumai, which means to, to, to preach. If you take every one of those Greek verbs, pull it out, and then look at the direct object. Does that make sense? So preaching something, teaching something, proclaiming something, heralding something, evangelizing something. What were the evangelists doing? What were these disciples doing? Very interesting. There's about 30 or so times this happens. Listen to, the, listen to what the apostles preach. These are the direct objects that follow the verbs. Okay? Jesus, Lord Jesus, Christ. Christ Jesus is Lord. Christ crucified. Christ as raised from the dead. Jesus and the resurrection. Good news about the kingdom. Jesus as the Son of God. The gospel. The gospel of God. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of peace the word of the Lord, the forgiveness of sins, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and Christ in you, the hope of glory. As the object of these verbs demonstrate, I believe there's no doubt that Christ was the heart of apostolic preaching. Did they preach other things? Of course they did. They talked about our life in this Christian pilgrimage of suffering. They talked about friendship, communication, reconciliation, whatever it means. There's a lot of topics but it always was centered on Jesus. 
And so, if you take a look at one of the very first Christian sermons, if we can call it that, in Acts chapter 2, right? Paul, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, right? And all these, these disciples of Christ speak, start speaking in tongues, which were known languages of the time. So it's like me speaking like Russian or something like that, declaring the glories of God. And, G, and then Peter stands up on, in Acts chapter 2 and get, gives a great sermon, right? And he starts off with a great introduction. We are not drunk. Always wanted to start a sermon that way, but I don't think I can. I am not drunk. That's what he says, right? Peter says, these men are not drunk, as you may suppose. Because how would you explain what's going on right now? This is crazy, right? There's no natural explanation for what these men are doing. So let me explain it for you. It's actually supernatural. God is doing something through Jesus. This Jesus that you put, to, put, to, put on the cross. And then he starts recounting redemptive history, the history of the Israelites to where we are at this time. And then he says, and now, how should you respond to this Jesus who lived for you, died for you? Repent and believe. Right? And then it says, they were cut to the heart. I love that verse. So a lot of times before I preach, I say, Lord, would you cut us to the heart? Cut all of us to the heart. So they were cut to the heart. They believed in the word and thousands were coming to salvation. Hallelujah, right? But that's what the apostles were doing. Paul does the exact same thing in Acts chapter 13. We don't have time. So all that to say, look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon there. Paul in Acts chapter 13 and what he does when he goes into the synagogue, similar methodology and style. So one of the main reasons why we preach, read, interpret, preach, and teach Christ from all the scriptures is because it's biblical. Secondly, we preach Christ because it's foundational. Simply put, it's foundational to understanding the whole Bible. Without Jesus, the Bible makes no sense. I actually believe there's one major storyline in the Bible. Yes, there are a lot of characters. There are a lot of scenes. There are a lot of settings over a long period of time. It's a very long mystery novel, if you think about it. Right? From the very beginning of this novel, this grand narrative, this grand story, two people are created, Adam and Eve. Problem emerges. Conflict. It's a great story. Conflict enters into the scene. Who's going to resolve this conflict? The seed of the woman, right? So we already have glimpses of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then you wait, 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 wait thousands of years for the seed of the woman to actually arrive. And he steps onto the stage. He does something no one else has ever done before. He lives a sinless life, completely obeying his father. He dies a sinner's death, which he did not deserve and yet is raised to glory. And then the rest of the story continues, right? So this grand narrative, the whole Bible is centered around that major storyline, that narrative arc. Otherwise, everything that happens in the Bible makes no sense. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to go to the back of the mystery novel, figure out who actually did it. Jesus did it. That's, that's, the, that's basically the storyline. So everything that happens to, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, individually, as well as whatever happens to Israel corporately, cannot be fully understood without Jesus and this gospel storyline. And I'll hopefully demonstrate ta- that to you when we go to the second section, second answer, or the second question I hope to answer, which is how do we then do this? By showing you how I do it in the Old Testament. All right? So then let me, third reason. Third reason why we, I know I'm going fast. Third reason why I believe we ought to read the scriptures, 
interpret the scriptures and preach and teach the scriptures in light of Christ is because it's eminently practical. Not only is it biblical, not only is it foundational to understanding the entire storyline of the Bible, the big stories as well as all the little stories in between, is because it's, third reason is because it's eminently practical. Listen to this. You cannot become a Christian or grow as a Christian without Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's a good thing. Yeah. You could be happy about that. Yeah. It's like, people are, you cannot become a Christian or grow as a Christian without Jesus. Now for many of us, that first, the first part of that statement, that you cannot become a Christian without Jesus, makes a lot of sense. And thus we come to conferences like this that teach us how to testify, to give witness to, the, to Jesus and His gospel, the good news of what He's done. But grow as a Christian? Pastor Julius, for me to grow as a Christian, you need to give me seven steps of how to be a better friend. Ten steps of how to be a better husband. It's harder to be a husband than a friend. So I need at least ten rules for that. Right? And so oftentimes we, we get into our pulpits, we find the right texts, and we try to give you, basically, in my opinion, new law of things you must do or things you shouldn't do. Now, don't get me wrong. Morals are good. Holiness is good. Obedience is good. Being a loving, sacrificial husband is good. Being a good friend. Those are all good things. But essentially, if that's the message that you're giving on a Sunday, you're basically saying this. You become a Christian through Jesus, but you become a better Christian, or you grow as a Christian by your hard work. And guess what? Every other religion teaches that, including every rabbi. Rabbis preach from the Old Testament, Jewish rabbis in a synagogue, and these, these stories of the Old Testament basically become moral lessons of how, to, how you can dare to be a Daniel, to not have fear like Joshua, to be bold and courageous like David. When he met Goliath. What are the Goliaths in your life? (laughs) Think about these obstacles that God has placed in your life. How will you overcome them? Think about the five rocks you will need to sling at the obstacles that you face. The giants. The rock of prayer. (laughs) The rock of the word. I I would be good at this, huh? (laughs) Now let's pass out the offering, right? You know? But essentially, think about it. Isn't that how we're often wired? That the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is only necessary to become a Christian. But once you become a Christian, in order to grow, it's now pull yourself up by your bootstraps and now give me moral lessons. The Bible tells a very different, gives a very different message. That even your sanctification... Right? You're becoming more and more like Jesus is only through Jesus. Just like your justification being made right with God is only through Jesus' account. So your justification and sanctification is based upon Jesus and the gospel. Does that make sense? So you cannot become a Christian or grow as a Christian without the gospel, without Jesus. So how then, Julius, do you talk about being a good husband? For example, let's say one of the things I need to learn more as a good husband is how to, how to be more forgiving, right? 
I don't, how many of how many of us need to be more forgiving? Obviously, we all do. So it's easy for me to say, "Hey, be more forgiving." How come you're not so forgiving? Let me give you five reasons why you're not forgiving. Because you're bad. <laughs> and you're bad. And because you're bad. Three. Right? That's essentially five reasons for the cause of unforgiveness. Right? Those are good. Let me give you five reasons how you can forgive. 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 Forgive, forgive. You're like, yeah, you're right. I should... I am bad, 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 bad. And I should forgive, forgive, forgive. So you leave church on that Sunday more beaten down. Why? Because you're trying to do it in your own power. See, Christ is not only the penalty payer, but he's also the power provider. The work of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ is the only Spirit that can help you, that can empower you to forgive. Because it's otherworldly. And that's why Christians are able to forgive one another, even in a courtroom, when this person mistakenly killed their sister, brother, friend, father, right? Christians can actually forgive because they understand where true forgiveness comes from. We forgive because God forgave us. And as God has forgiven us, it changes our whole perspective on forgiveness. So you see how practical this is? Whatever we need to do, whatever we don't do or should do more of can only happen as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ empowers us. And so every Sunday when we get to the pulpit, every day when you're reading the Scriptures, you're looking at the Scriptures going, how does this show me Jesus? What is, where is Jesus here? And what do I need to learn from this text? What are the points being made here by the author? How does it, what, what is he saying about forgiveness? How do I connect forgiveness to Jesus? And then how do I apply it in my life through Jesus? Does that make sense? And so, these are the three main reasons. So I've just distilled for you at least one semester's worth of a class in these three reasons. We preach Christ. We read, we read Christ. We interpret Christ. We preach Christ from all the scriptures because it's biblical, it's foundational, and practical. Now, what does it look like? Let me begin by just saying it's not easy to read Christ, interpret Christ, and preach Christ from all the scriptures. It's not easy, but it's a lot easier than you may think. As I said earlier, one of the main things we want to do is ensure that we're doing justice to both the human author and the unique things that he is saying in the text, but also the divine author. We have to do justice in our interpretive method to both. Because otherwise, what happens if you only if you only focus on what the human author is saying, it may just keep you in that, let's say, context, century, specific section of the Bible and time. Let's say the Old Testament. And if you don't see, I'll explain just a little bit. But if you don't see Christ, you just get stuck there, and it becomes essentially moralistic. But if you do Jesus only, and you don't take this into consideration, then every sermon sounds the same. There's got to be something unique about the text. So we have to be good expositors of the text, but then also add another layer of interpretation, which is gospel, centri- gospel centrality. So let me, let me give you an example from a text that I love, Exodus 17. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Exodus 17, and we'll use this as a case study. This, this text will be a little familiar to you. This is where the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. They've left Egypt. 
They're wandering during this 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. They get thirsty. So they cry out to Moses for water. And during that course, and as they cry out, they complain, etc. Moses miraculously hits the rock and the water comes out of it. Remember that story? So let me read, read the text. All the congregation of the people of Israel, this verse 1 through 7, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rufadim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So let's say hypothetically you're doing your devotions, you come to this particular text, you read it, you want to interpret it, or you're a pastor or a Bible study leader and you want to give a lesson on this. Without getting into too many details, this is some of what I would do to try to understand what this author, the human author, here in Exodus 17, as well as what the divine author is trying to teach me. Essentially, I want to eventually get to Jesus, so I'll get there. So one of the first things I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the text, and because this is Hebrew narrative, Hebrew narratives operate under certain rules. You, you understand these interpretive rules. Every time you pick up a newspaper, at least for the most part, stay with me on this, you actually believe that journalism as a genre, <laughs> that the writer is giving you factual information that you can just believe as true. I know that's changing a lot today. But for the most part, when you read a news article, you have a kind of contractual agreement with the writer, don't you? That what they're saying to you is true and factual. But when you pick up Dr. Seuss, like the book Green Eggs and Ham, many of you read this or have read this before, Green Eggs and Ham, you don't approach it in the same way because you know there's no such thing as green eggs. Well, if there were green eggs, you would want to throw that away very fast. But there's no such thing because why? He's using figurative language to make a case. And that he's trying to teach a larger story, a larger point of trying new things that are foreign to you. So that's, that's his story, right? So you approach that interpretively with different rules, using figurative language, metaphor, etc. Similarly, when you go to the Bible, one of the first things you want to do is say, what's the genre of this text? This is story. Hebrew stories operate in a certain way. It's called narrative arc, right? The Hebrew stories are almost always, many of our stories, Hebrew stories always start with a semblance of peace. Everything is, everything is good to go. But then something emerges that causes action, and that's conflict. And then the story continues, and there's a story of conflict that kind of, it's more like this, right? It's ups and downs, ups and downs, trying to get at a resolution. But then there's ultimately a climax to the story. And then there's resolution. And normally you'll notice that where we started the story and where we ended the story are two different, two different locations, right? 
Because most stories in the Bible, after reading it, they don't want you to be at the same place. When you read a good book, a good story, when you watch a good drama, a good movie, every, every movie story operates with this type, of, this type of function. Does that make sense? Literary function. This story needs to be seen in the same way. And oftentimes, this is what will keep you and guard you from going to crazy interpretive methods. Because oftentimes, it's in this area, the conflict and the climax, where the main ideas of the story are being presented for us to interpret. Usually, when a conflict enters, is, is, is usually the problem, issue, sin. It could be sin, not always sin of the people, the characters in the story, and we need to connect to that. That's, that's probably where we're struggling. Similarly, when the story comes to a climax and there's resolution, it's the solution, right? Christ in the Hebrew narratives are usually found here in the solution and not in another detail. So in this story, if you notice in this story, it starts off, they're walking around in the, in, the, in the wilderness of sin. By the way, that's not literal sin. That's an actual just place. And then, verse 2, they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. This is where paying attention to the details of the, of the author are very important to try to figure out what the author is trying to articulate. That word quarrel is a very unique word in Hebrew. It's actually the word used to bring a lawsuit against. It's not, I'm arguing with, with Moses. I'm not arguing with God. In fact, the place Masa and Meribah, Masa means trial. So what's actually happening here is Israel is taking Moses and God to court. And what do they do? They bring a charge. They are plaintiffs now in this courtroom drama. Do you get it? That's what's happening because that word. Furthermore, in verse 4, Moses is afraid of stoning. That's not normally what happens when you're thirsty. You don't stone your leader when you're thirsty. Stoning was a specific punishment for breaking of a contract, especially treason. So what are they doing? He said, did you bring us, our children, and our livestock to die of thirst? You're breaking your promise to us. God, you said you will be my God. We will be your people. We, you said that you were going to multiply us as the sands of the seashore. And I see a lot of sand here. But look, I'm about to die. My family's about to die. My finances are about to die. And in that crucible of life that many of us also face, how often do we question the Lord's leading and say, are you among us or not? Verse 7. And so rather than leaving the future up to chance, right? the conflict here is thirst, right? But is it just thirst? Is that the problem that we need to solve? Well, yes. So most of you that have done any sort of counseling or any of you that are just parents, you know when kids have problems, there's the issue. They're thirsty, but they're crying out for something probably something more. That's the presenting problem. But they make it very simple for us, right, in this text. It's death. They're afraid of death. Did you bring us up out of Egypt to die? So I don't trust you anymore, God. I want out of this relationship. That's what the Israelites are doing. That's the charge they present. God, you broke your promise. 
We're about to die. I don't trust you anymore. We want a divorce. That's how severe this situation is. So it's more than just a thirsty problem. It's a rebellion. It's a distrust, which then begs the question. And then we start. That's the conflict that emerges in the story, which then begs the question. Has God been unfaithful to them? So we ask before the verdict, right? Because the next thing that's going to come is, all right, let's take a look at the evidence. You go two chapters before, or one chapter before in Exodus 16, Exodus 15, they were thirsty, remember? And they came upon a, a, a brook of water that was bitter. Moses throws in a log, the water becomes sweet to drink. So they've actually been thirsty before, and God saved them. They were hungry, and what does God do? Gives them manna from heaven and quail. Even double fold on the Sabbath so they don't have to work. Right? Time and time again, God has been faithful to them. Furthermore, this is not the first death-defying situation. It wasn't that long ago they were fleeing from Pharaoh and the Egyptian soldiers. Remember? For their life. God opens up the Red Sea. Close to two million people cross through the Red Sea. Untouched by the roaring walls that are beside them. And as the last Israelite stepped up on the opposite shore, Moses puts his arms down, the waves engulfed the Egyptians. And there they stood, right? Seeing the soldiers wash up on the shore. Tangibly, God has demonstrated his faithfulness to them when they were thirsty, hungry, and in a death-defying situation. And yet at the first sign of trouble, they're thirsty again. That's it, God. We're not going to trust you anymore. I want out. But has God been unfaithful? So who's on trial here? We know someone's going to get it. Why? Because later on in the text, we know a verdict's going to be handed down. Because God tells Moses, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Whenever those little details shows up, like take in your hand the staff and go. That would have made sense. But it says, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile River, parentheses, and go, right? Why that detail? So our antennas go up. We start thinking about it. Huh, isn't it interesting? When Moses used that walking stick and strike the Nile River, what, is it a, what was it a strike of? It was a strike of judgment against Pharaoh's disobedience and made the life-giving waters of the Nile death itself, turning it into blood, you see? And that's what God is saying. Take that verdict rendering, justice-giving staff and use it again. So someone's guilty. And then remember another little detail in the story. Take some of the elders with you and go. Again, in this courtroom drama, they're necessary so that justice is served correctly. It's okay. You want a trial, Israel? Let's have a trial. Bring all the elders. Let's amass the evidence. And by the way, Moses, bring your staff. Ah, oh, someone's going to get it now. <laughs> Here goes the elders. <laughs> and Moses is carrying his stick. Wait a minute. Wait, who's on trial? Wait, wait a minute. Didn't we just put Moses and God on trial? And that's the wonderful irony of the story. Not wonderful, but the irony of the story. It's actually the people of Israel are on trial. They're the ones that have broken the contract. God says, trust me, even when it's hard. I will lead you. And they say, no. And they're the ones that turn their back on God at the first chance. So what they don't realize is that the people of Israel are actually the one on trial, just like us. Are we any different from the Israelites when we go through our hard times? 
And they are hard times. Death-defying situations when our children are about to die. Our finances are wherever they may be, but they're not in my pocket. And in those kind of desert-like wilderness experiences, how often do we cry out to God in the middle of the night, God, are you among us or not? These are real-life feelings we all have when we're tempted to not trust in our God. But what does God do amazingly? He says, yes, someone, someone is guilty. The staff will bring the rod of justice, is going to be the rod, is the sentencing. And in this amazing story of grace is the gospel. Because what happens? Remember the climax of the story? So they're going, rock, they're going to rock, stone me. Then you, we, we realize that Exodus 17 is after Exodus 15 and 16. He hasn't been unfaithful. So what is it? Verse 6, very important verse. God says, take in your hand and then strike the rock. The rock that I will stand upon. Two important prepositions in verse 6 that we sometimes look over. But as Hebrew experts that you are, I'm sure you've noticed those. God says, I will go before you and I will stand on the rock. Before and on. Two important prepositions that make all the difference not only to the story, but for you and for me. (coughs) When God says, I will go before you, he's actually acting like the defendant. In the Bible, in courtroom dramas, God always says, defendant stand before me. That's the preposition that's always used. Criminal stand before the judge. Now God says, I will go before. Secondly, God says, I will stand on the rock. Why? He's identifying himself symbolically with that rock. Do you see what's happening here? God knows that the punishment for this type of contractual breaking is death by stoning. So God says, I will go before taking your place. Now strike the rock on which I am now standing. Strike me. Break me. Punish me. For I will be your sacrificial substitute. Because you cannot die for me to keep my promises. I will die for you so you can live. God says, I will go before, I will stand on the rock. And then he tells Moses, now take that staff and strike the rock. Imagine if Moses understood fully what was happening. That he's striking the Lord God himself, who's taking the place of the accused. And then what happens? The rock is split in two. Water starts pouring out to that desert floor. But not just any old water, right? Life-giving water. Life-sustaining water. Eternal water. Paul explains for us this sentencing, makes it very easy for us how to interpret Exodus 17. Because in 1 Corinthians 10.4, he says, that rock was Christ. But do you see, even without Exodus or 1 Corinthians 10.4, we understand what's happening here by just looking at this Hebrew, this Hebrew, the way the story just works. The problem is this conflict, this death-defying situation, the rebellion of the people of Israel. They must die, but in the climax... God dies in their stead. You see, when you start reading the story that way, not only are you getting the details and the unique elements of the story, but you ultimately get to Jesus. And that's why you can say, people of God, 
even in the most darkest and most difficult of wilderness situations, you can trust in God. Keep trusting in God. Because look what God has done for you. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and that sword was thrust into his side? What poured out of his side? Blood and water. When Jesus stood on John 7, he stood up at the feast and said, I give you eternal water. Drink drink from me. In Revelation 22, on the great throne of the Lamb of God, the one who has already been slain for us, the Lamb of God sits on his throne and what's pouring out of, of his throne? The river of life. All of these water mentions are not, it's not a coincidence. It's God's unique way of teaching us that he's always been in control. Not only of our destinies, but even of his word. So not only do we have the human author that we need to interpret all these little details, but then we need to add on another layer of the, of the divine author and what he intends. You see? And that's the gospel. The gospel comes out of places like Exodus 17. I don't think a rabbi in a synagogue would preach it that way. He would preach the first half and say, you Israelites, you're just, you're still the same. You Jews are still the same. Still don't tr- trust in the Lord. You better trust more. Shame on you. Right? As far as I'm concerned, I don't want to read the Bible nor preach the Bible or teach the Bible like a rabbi. I want to interpret the Bible and preach the Bible like a Christian preacher, a Christian reader, a Christian interpreter. Because if Christ is not present in the text, then I'm no different than a rabbi. So this is how I believe you can preach Christ from all the scriptures. And that's just one text. Now, it may seem like it's really easy for me to do. Well, it kind of is a little bit. (laughs) Because I've been doing this, I've been teaching this for like 20 years. But having said that, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's a lot of work. But what would you rather do? What would you rather want to do than to go deeper and deeper into God's Word because you get deeper and deeper into the mind and heart of God Himself, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy, found preeminently in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as far as I'm concerned, this is all I want to do is read and, and interpret and preach and teach the Bible in light of the gospel, and I hope you do too. So I'm done. So I did it all in about 45 minutes. Not bad? Is it okay? Was it impressive? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How how can I be careful about that? Yeah. So that again, Psalms is a little bit different because of its poetry. And poet poetry functions, Hebrew poetry functions differently than this. And so there are certain rules that you need to follow to try to get at what's the main message that the poet is trying to articulate from that section of Psalm one nineteen, which is also very difficult. Because Psalms if Psalm one nineteen, if I'm not mistaken, has twenty two different sections of eight verses each. It's primarily for pedagogical, catechetical purposes. And so even in there, however, he's going to make a point. And he makes it through things like repetition, alliteration, and other poetic devices. But after you do all that, you come up with the main idea that the poet is trying to articulate. For example, um, need to, 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 the, Lord disciplines his people. the Lord disciplines his people. And so there's, I think one of the, the key things you have to discern, determine is what's the main indicative... And what's the main imperative of the story? 
of that text. What's the main truth? What is the text trying to teach? And then ask the question, why is the text trying to teach us that? For what type of response, which is the imperative, right? And, it dep- and every, text dep- every text leans one way or another. It's either more indicatively approached, namely uh, propositional about teaching us something about God and his disciplinary nature. Or it's more imperatively focused on you, us needing to change something about the way we think, feel, or act. So I think on that particular text, it's, it's more about God's disciplinary nature. And so the implied, oftentimes, in imperative is something else. So you have to try to figure out if what is God telling us from that text about our response to his disciplinary nature. Is it that we should be more repentant, that we should be more humble, that we should be more aware of God's word? There's a variety of different imperatival foci or focuses, whatever you want to say, in light of the text. So it would just, I think a lot of it would depend on the text, but wanting to balance that indicative imperative. Because ultimately the indicative imperative has to have the gospel in there too. Why should we obey the word? Psalm 119 is a lot about how much we love the word, we don't follow the word. Or why should we care about God's discipline? Or how do we respond to God's difficult, severe mercies of discipline? Through the gospel. That's right. That's right. God has been faithful to us. In fact, if you look at anything in the Bible that we need to be faithful to, we can't. Any law, right? right? Take any law, like thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, lie or steal. It's like, so we, we, we explain that? Don't lie. Okay? Don't lie. By the way, you're going to lie. But don't lie. That's the, those are my three-point sermon, right? <laughs> About lying, essentially at the core. But, what, what, but I think there's a, there's a fundamental change where it says, the Bible says don't lie. Here are the reasons why you do lie, and you're going to continue to lie because you're a sinner. Thank God there was someone who never lied. Now through his power, through his spirit, you cannot lie through him. So that, that fundamentally changes the whole dynamic of the sermon and the gospel and our ability to follow that particular law. And so again, that psalm may be advancing a particular law to follow, a particular commandment, as opposed to a promise, right? Indicatives are more promise-driven. Imperatives are more commandment-driven. So those are just some ways that I would approach that. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How would you? Is it okay to use those examples in the Old Testament to learn lessons? Absolutely. Lessons? Absolutely. And not just shut it like. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. You don't want to discount yeah. some of the moral lessons that we can learn from people like well, David, good or bad. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So there, let's take the kings of Israel. There's a variety of kings of Israel. For example, there's two particular kings when they were faced by the oncoming armies of Assyria. One bowed his face to God and said, God, we cannot do this without you. So he prostrates himself on behalf of the people of Israel. And he says, God, please help us. He cries out to the Lord. And God says, I heard your cry. I'm going to help you. And he destroys the Assyrians. But there's another king, same kind of situation. And he goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get all my armies together. I'm going to do whatever I can in my own power. And what happens? Assyria comes and wipes them out. And so, how do we preach those two? One is, don't be like this king, be like this king. Right? That's a good, that's true. But guess what? By yourself, you still can't do it. 
but there's still lessons to be learned about how they approach those problems, right? So good and bad. And I think there's much we can learn from that. So again, it's, it's that balance that I talked about earlier. The author, the author of these stories are giving us unique details and insights into the way these characters approach the problem, how they approached it. A lot we can learn from that. But ultimately, the next level is, do we then say, don't be like this or be like this? Or we say, be like this, but you can't without Jesus. Don't be like this. Oh, you already are like this, but you need Jesus. So either way, you're just adding another layer, not, not stripping away the details of the story or any of the unique elements of David's life or David's courage. I think there's still a lot we can learn about David's courage. But is the story given to us only to teach us about David's courage? It's not either David's courage or Jesus' work. It's not either or. It's both and. It's both David's courage and Jesus' work for us as the greater David. Just like David conquered Goliath through his courage, the greater David came and conquered the greatest Goliath of all, sin and death, for us, so that we can be like David or the better David and face our obstacles with courage and faith and trust because Jesus already did it for us. So we can be courageous Christians. Why? Because we have shepherding skills. We know how to throw a sling. No, we can have those skills. Ultimately, our courage stems from the fact that our greater David already conquered it for us. So if our greater David already conquered death, every problem we face It's not a problem. I mean, it is a problem. Don't get me wrong. It is a problem, but it's more manageable, right? When we know that Jesus has already claimed victory over the greatest enemy of all. So it's again putting perspective, a gospel perspective on life's problems and how we approach it. Does that kind of help a little bit? Yeah. I think that's a lot. That's a great question because a lot of people who are kind of new to the idea of Christocentric interpretation and preaching say, ah, you just go right to Jesus. You take away, you strip away all the, the, the colorful stories and all the great things that we learn about the Bible. And I actually think you, the, the stories of the Bible are more black and white. And what Jesus does is puts it into like 4D, you know, 4K, <laughs> vivid color and excitement. That's what I see. Yeah. But it's, again, it's not easy. It just takes a lot of um, careful interpretive work, careful organization of, of your sermon and, or Bible study, whatever, and then communicating that well. Yeah, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. What I would recommend if, you're, if you want to collect more commentaries is just, it's actually a, it's a book that talks about commentaries. It's a commentary on commentaries, <laughs> if there's such a thing. And for, for many of us, we cannot read all the commentaries out there. Right? So we have to trust in some of the commentators. And so in the kind of TGC orbit, let's say, those of us who are kind of evangelical and reformed, there's, for the Old Testament, there's a little book, I think it's by Zonervin, called, I don't even know what it's called, it's like a commentary of commentaries by Tremper Longman. And so what he does, he goes through each book of the Bible, let's say Genesis, he'll list like about 20, comment, 20 of the main commentaries on Genesis, and he'll rank them. And he'll give them like one star, two star, three star, four star, five star, and why. So it's like an annotated bibliography of all the different commentaries. And so that's a great place to just start. The New Testament version is created by Don Carson, my my predecessor. So the Old Testament one is by Tremper Longman. The New Testament one on commentaries is by D.A. Carson. And I I would trust their... They've been looking at the the Bible for a long time. And 
I forget the title of it. Do you know it, Joey? Old Testament Commentary Survey. Old Testament Commentary Survey by Tremper Longman. And then I'm guessing Don Carson says New Testament Commentary Survey. That would be a great place to start. Yeah. Yes? Did you say anything about Sidney Gabanus' uh-huh. commentaries? Because I, I, I've used some of them, and some of the, the ways he connects to Christ are a little bit, to, to me, a little bit legalistic use of, of Christ and how he would live. Mm-hmm. Less uh, gospel Yeah, so I think one of the things that might be helpful for us to say, first off, before I answer that, that section on Gradanus, is finding Christ in the text uh, presupposes what aspect of Christ you're talking about. For example, one of the ways we find, find Christ in this is the penalty-paying work of Christ. Right? That's the grace we see in this story. The type of grace is Christ taking our place on the cross, the place that we deserve for disobeying God and turning our back on God for breaking the contract. So we deserve death, but Jesus takes our place. That's, that's Christ's penalty-paying work. But not all, not all texts focuses on that particular grace, for lack of better words. It could be a different kind of grace, like power-producing grace. That the Spirit of Christ produces power within us. The sanctifying work of Christ may be the focus of Christ. For example, it could also be the probation-keeping work of Christ, meaning... We, every time we go to the Bible, especially on commandments, on laws, we have the Bible t- tells us a lot of laws we have to follow, a lot of commandments we need to follow. But ultimately, we cannot follow them in our own power. Thank God for the gospel, the gospel of grace. And this is, this is Christ keeping all the commandments of, of, of God for us in our place, the probation-keeping work of God, of Christ. So there's different ways or different angles in which Christ is presented, if that makes sense. So having said that, it could be that Gradanus focuses only on one or a few, or when he does get to Christ in the text, there may, it may be a loose connection somewhere that isn't warranted. And so finding warrant isn't really important, of finding Christ in the text. And in narratives, in Hebrew narratives, usually the warrant is the climax of the story, because that's how it works. So there's a lot of stories. For example, you know the Passover? Passover story, uh, I know we're running out of time, I'll just say really quick, Passover, it, God tells Israel to, to paint the doorposts with blood, and the angel of death will pass over, right, and not kill the baby, remember? So you read that story, go, ooh, fascinating. Where is Jesus in this story? And you totally forget about narrative, that the conflict climax, oh, why the doorposts? Interesting. The blood is on the doorposts. Well, how do doorposts function? Where they're the entry into the house. So what is the entry into our lives? Our eyes. The eyes are the entry to the soul. So we need to watch what we look at. The internet. Movies. TV. Because those are the doorposts of sin. And we allow sin to enter into our doorposts. And they need to be covered by the blood of Christ. Oh, that's how I'm going to preach it. Right? What's wrong with that? Very imaginative. <laughs> Very creative. I could create a whole sermon out of that, trust me. And make you feel really guilty about your eyes and your doorposts and how you need Jesus to cover your eyes, right? But that, that takes you away from this, the way narrative works. And you're taking a detail of the story that the author never intended you to take in that way. So you're doing justice to the author's intention 
by looking at the way the narrative works and not a detail. That's allegory. That's like taking a detail that the author himself didn't even intend. So this is where, again, commentators will help, kind of keep you on track. Overall, Gradonis is very helpful to me. I think he gets it. I think some of the way he explains how to get to Christ can be a little confusing, frankly. He has like six different ways to Jesus. And I think there's got to be a way to make it a little bit more simple. Yeah. But we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. <laughs>